nothing better than to be here together on the Lord's Day. We get to continue our study in the Gospel of John, and we are arriving this morning at John chapter 10. So as we get ready for that, let's just ask the Lord's blessing. Father, we are so thankful that of all the places on earth we could be, we are here. Father, we're thankful that for all of the objects of our study, we get to study your word. And of all the people on the earth, we get to do so with fellow believers, even in this room right now. We're thankful for that. We pray that your Holy Spirit will guide this study and will give us insight as together we read, ponder, and study your word in the Gospel of John. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Now, every once in a while, it's good just to step back and remind ourselves of what we're doing. We're going verse by verse and line by line through the Gospel of John. We're we're not in a rush. We are just allowing the text to unfold before us, and we're trying to take the units of text in as natural a a system as, as we can. So, for instance, When we were together last, we looked at the entirety of John chapter 9, and the reason for that was because it is a driving energetic text that really isn't easily broken up into smaller texts. It's one long, extremely powerful narrative, and it's about Jesus healing a man who had been born blind and how by the time we are at the end of the text, it's really about seeing and not seeing, and the man who was born blind turns out to be the one who sees, and the one who had perfect eyes turn out to see nothing at all, and, and it is an issue of the gospel. And so, there are those who see the gospel and believe, as that man did when he, he worshiped Christ, recognizing Him as the Son of Man. And then there are those who, who will not see, and that, again, makes sight not so much a matter of the eyes, as it turns out, but a matter of the soul. The, the eyes become metaphorically uh, the great difference between those who understand the gospel and receive the gospel and see Christ and seize on Christ and, and those who reject Him. But there was something else that took place in John chapter 9. There's a pattern that is seen in the seeing and in the not seeing, and it's the not seeing that becomes so important, first of all. The not seeing was primarily those who were religious authorities, and in particular, the Pharisees. They they, they would not see. So, you recall the man who was born blind when he was healed. He was brought before the Pharisees, not once, but twice, And the Pharisees basically said, this could not have happened to you. Or if it did happen, it had to be done by someone uh, for nefarious purposes. It, it, It can't be what it looks like. That, by the way, I know there's some lawyers in the room, but that, by the way, is considered a really bad legal defense. It's not what it looks like. Uh, We all know what that's like as children when we try to explain to our parents. It's not what it looks like. And as parents, payback comes when our children try to explain to us. It's not as bad as it looks. It's not what it looks like. It reminds me of uh, what was attributed to Abraham Lincoln 
who uh, said that the, you know, the worst quandary for a, a defense attorney was having to look to a jury and say, who are you going to believe, me or your lying eyes? Not a good position to be in. But when we come to John chapter 10, this is an extension of the very same text. So, one of the interesting literary issues to look at in the Gospels, but particularly in the Gospel of John, is that when you have a chronological break, when there's a passage of time and perhaps uh, even a, a change of, of, of scene, then you will have language like, after these things. So, after those things happen, okay, something new is starting. Or after Jesus had been in Galilee, all right, well, now he's somewhere else, so something new is starting. There is no such transitional language when John continues in John chapter 10. And remember, he didn't write chapter 10. He wrote one long gospel. The chapter and verse divisions were put in centuries later so that we could do what we're doing right now, which is to find the text. But we have to make sure we do not put breaks in the text that are not there. There is no break between what we have as the end of chapter 9 and the beginning of chapter 10. Further evidence of this is the fact that Jesus begins, as you see in John chapter 10, with the words, truly, truly, or verily, verily in the old King James. And so, that is another demonstration of the fact that this is a continuing conversation. It's like what we have in the, gospel, in the uh, letters of Paul, where, for instance, most infamously in the letter to the Romans, the chapter and verse divisions often begin three different times in, in the gospel, in the uh, book of Romans, three different times in the epistle of the Romans. There are chapters that begin, therefore, or there is now therefore. Well, that's a continuation of a conversation. Nothing wrong with the chapter division, as long as you recognize they're just so that we can find our way in the text, period. When we come to John chapter 10, the first two words are truly, truly. We read together, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them. And the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of a stranger. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. This turns out to be one of the most beautiful passages in the entire Bible about the relationship of Christ to the church. Just out of nowhere, it lands before us. And as we are going to be looking at John chapter 10, we recognize we're also confronting a situation in which misreading this text, the way many evangelical Christians misread the text, leads to enormous theological difficulties. And we're going to see what those are, and we're going to strive not to misread the text, obviously. We want to read the text exactly as it should be understood. John chapter 10, Jesus picks up on what had just happened in John chapter 9. At the end of John chapter 9, the man who was born blind but now sees, he's confronted by Jesus who says, 
You have seen him, meaning the Son of Man, it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who, may see, who see may become blind. Then look very carefully at verse 40. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. They are the guilty ones, just has been made clear. They will not see. Therefore, they are not only guilty of the refusal to see Jesus as who he is, but they are also misleading and corrupting Israel. That leads us to chapter 10, and that explains why Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. Well, he's calling the Pharisees thieves and robbers. He's saying a couple of things here. Number one, you're not the true leaders of Israel. You're not the legitimate leaders of Israel. You're acting as if you're the leaders of Israel, but you are not put in place by God. You are fulfilling a function that is actually antithetical to God's purpose for Israel. You aren't the guardians of the sheep. You, you are the abusers of the sheep. You're the stealers of the sheep. You're thieves and robbers. But then Jesus goes on and he says, but he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. In other words, legitimately, legitimately. And the point here is, no one could be more legitimate than the Son of God incarnate in human flesh. He is the one who legitimately comes for the sheep. He tells the sheep what the sheep need to hear. He brings truth to the sheep. He brings salvation to the sheep. He he is the Lord of the sheep. And, and then understanding that logic, the text only becomes more beautiful. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. And here Jesus is referring to himself as the shepherd. Israel is the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Very interesting. The picture here is of a sheepfold. There were really two different kinds of sheepfolds in ancient Israel. One of them very small, one of them much larger. Uh, out in the rural pasture land, a sheepfold would often be made up of circ circled stones, just, a, just a, a couple of feet high, stones that had been stacked in a circle. The sheep would be put, there'd be an opening the sheep would be put inside the stones. They would find comfort and protection there, and they wouldn't wander off. They would stay in that area. But there would be, have been an opening where they would have been let in, and it would be about the size of a man so that the shepherd or shepherds, in this case it could be a shepherd alone, would recline at the opening and seal off the opening with his own body, and he would sleep there, and, and thus, he would, he would finish the circle, the sheep would be confined, they would be peaceful, they would be sleeping. The sheep would slumber, the shepherd sleeping right there among them. The, the larger sheep gate and, and sheepfold would be uh, more constructed with walls, and there would be a gate, so the gate would be big enough because this would be a much larger enclosure. Uh, usually close to a village or a, a city because it would be 
much greater number of sheep, greater amount of value, and greater risk. So this would be more of a walled enclosure, and there would be a gate. And uh, the, the problem with sheep is that you have, to have, you have to have the ability on both sides of the gate for things to go well. For one thing, you don't want the sheep to be frightened. Frightened sheep tend to run into each other and they damage one another. Frightened sheep are not good things. The other thing is, is that any of the colleagues of the shepherd need to recognize his voice, otherwise they're not going to open the door. So what's interesting is the sheep recognize the shepherd's voice, just like if you have a dog, the dog knows your voice and responds to you differently than to someone else. God's given so many of the animals the ability to recognize human voices. That's exactly the way it is with the sheep and the shepherd. They, they know his voice. They follow his voice. They, one of the interesting things about sheep is that they don't have to look often at the shepherd at all. The shepherd's voice is enough by its direction and by its presence for the sheep to be directed. But the important thing here is, is that the voice is being heard from the other side of the door, of the gate. Now, here's where there is often a problem with John chapter 10. And the, the complication of this problem will show up in a big way just a few verses later. We have to ask the question, who are the sheep? Who are the sheep? And uh, there, there are basically three different alternative readings. Two of them are disaster, and, and one of them's right. How's that for cutting down the options? The, the first option is that the sheepfold includes all humanity, all humanity. Uh, he came into his own, meaning human beings, if you're going to read it that way, and his, his own received him not. Well, the problem is it doesn't work at all for the sheepfold, the sheep in the sheepfold, uh, to be all humanity. No, it doesn't work at all. And so then there are some who will say, well, the sheepfold is the church. This is, this is Jesus speaking of the sheep as the church. Well, that turns out to be disastrous too. But the church is close. The third alternative is that the sheep in the sheepfold are Israel. That fits perfectly. That fits perfectly. The church is actually here, as we shall see, but the sheepfold, that is the sheep that are in the fold, they are not the church, they are Israel. But the church becomes visible first in the sheep who of Israel follow Christ. There's a preposition here that helps to make that clear. It's in this beautiful language about Jesus as, as being the shepherd. Look at verse 2. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. So much in just a few verses here. Notice that the, the preposition is out. It's out. So Jesus, in this case, is leading the sheep safely 
out. Well, he's not leading the sheep out of the church. He's leading the sheep into the church. But these sheep are being led out of Israel in this sense. That, 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 that's a, it's a beautiful metaphorical picture of what Jesus is doing when he comes to Israel and declares himself and preaches and teaches and performs miracles and declares the kingdom. It's a perfect picture of what has already happened in John chapter 9, where the man who was blind from birth receives his sight, and, and not only receives his physical sight, but also receives his, his spiritual sight, his theological sight. He comes to recognize Jesus as the Christ, and he's thrown out. Already in John 9, the, the Jewish authorities have cast him out of the synagogue. His parents have been cast out. There's more to this language upon reflection than what we've even just mentioned. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice. Another image that will come up again and again in Scripture. We hear His voice. How do you know who is a Christian? A Christian hears Jesus' voice. And here means not only audibly, but by, by obedience. He, the sheep hear His voice, and He calls His own sheep by name and leads them out. There is a specificity there. Stunning. It's actually a testimony to what we call effectual calling, the call of the gospel. Because he doesn't say he just calls the sheep out and some of them come. It, it doesn't say he, uh, he offers just a general call to the sheep and, uh, and they come. It says he calls them by name. They are his now, this is a part of what the Bible presents as how the gospel works, the effectual call. This is the work of the Holy Spirit, calling, first of all, opening our eyes that we can see, a sinner's in the condition of not seeing, not hearing, not understanding, not obeying, and then the quickening of the Holy Spirit happens, the illumination happens, and this effectual call explains how we are called specifically individually as a part of the doctrine of election. He calls by name and leads them out. And then as the text continues, when he has brought out all his, his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Why did they answer? Because they know his voice. Uh, how are they defined as his sheep? Because they follow him, they know his voice. And, and, and they follow him not only because he is their shepherd, but because, as this text will make clear, th there's the comfort of identity. They are his. They belong to him. They know his voice. And then Jesus expands on that. He says, a stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of a stranger. So the contrast is between the false teachers whose voice they do not know, that means the church now, because, because these are those who have been let out. These are Christians. They, they follow Christ because we know His voice. We will not follow the voice of another. A stranger we will not follow. But 
they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This is a beautiful warning to the church. We're not, we're not to follow the voice of a stranger. This is one of the most powerful and clear New Testament uh, pictures of the difference between true and false teaching and true and false teachers. We're not to be led astray by any other voice. We are to recognize that any other voice that would call us away is the voice of a stranger whom we are not to follow. Jesus continues even further. John tells us this figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Don't let that pass over too quickly. It's another reminder of the fact that as we're reading the Gospel of John, we know more than those who were in the Gospel of John knew at this point in the Gospel of John. We're in a privileged position by the gift of God in Scripture. And because John's telling us what they don't know, he's filling in gaps they don't yet understand, but hopefully, by God's grace, we do. Jesus was explaining this because they didn't yet understand what he was saying to them. And in full sympathy, how could they? They're receiving all of this at once. The picture goes on, as you see in verse 7. Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. Now, what is this? This is all the false prophets who came before, all the messianic figures who came before, all those who claimed to be the one whom God had sent, all the pretenders and, and all the zealots and all the rest who had declared that they were those who were bringing in the kingdom of God. They, they, they were thieves and robbers, every single one of them, but the sheep did not listen to them. And that's true. Israel did not respond. Uh, the, the, the vast majority did not respond. Certainly, Israel in this sense, the Israel of God, did not respond. They did not hear His, his voice. Look at verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd, We'll stop there for a moment. In the I am statements in the Gospel of John, here in close proximity in the matter of just a few sentences, we have two. I am the door and I am the good shepherd. They're sometimes conflated. They should not be. They're, they're two different pictures. And Jesus in these I am statements is giving us powerful pictures of who He is, evoking the I am, the ego, and me, the, the same language that was used by Moses, was uh, should say, was used to Moses. When Moses said to the voice that was coming from the bush that burned and was not consumed, who is sending me? What shall I say is your name? The one true and living God answered, I am that I am. I, I am. And 
Now Jesus uses that language in a way that everyone in Israel fully understood, I am the gate of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. What does it mean for Jesus to be the door of the sheep? Again, he's the guardian. He's the, he's the guardian of the sheep. He's the, he is the, the Lord of the sheepfold. He is the one who decides who goes in and who goes out. He is the one who decides who is and is not his sheep. He is the one who decides when his flock is full. And again, it follows the entire theology, which is going to become more evident later in this chapter. We're going to hear direct references back to John chapter 6. All the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I'll by no means cast out. No one can come to me unless the Father calls him. It's the same picture, it just gets richer chapter by chapter. I am the door of the sheep. The church has doors. Isn't that good to know? This is a church that highly prizes church membership, covenant church membership. It's because this is not merely a group of spiritually interested people. There's a group of covenanted, confessing, converted Christians. There's an outside and an inside. And, and if there isn't an outside and an inside, it's not a church. Well, who is the door by which one comes inside? Who has the right to say who is inside and outside? It's Jesus. But you not only have Jesus as the door of the sheep, but Jesus as the good shepherd. Now, when Jesus refers to himself as the good shepherd, the first thing you might think of is, well, there's that shepherd imagery that's so rich everywhere in Scripture. The Old Testament's full of shepherd imagery. We're glad to have it continued in the New Testament. It's a beautiful pastoral picture we can understand. We can see the helpless sheep uh, sweetly slumbering because of a safe shepherd who is guarding over them. The, the good shepherd watches over us as the good shepherd of the sheep watches over his lambs. That, that, that's good. That, that's, that's good. That's a good place to start. But specifically, your mind should go to the 23rd Psalm, the most familiar of all the Psalms, where Israel learned to pray, the Lord is my shepherd. And, and Israel, even in the Psalms, which became the cultus of its worship, it's, it, it, it repeats over and over again, even in the Psalter, what it means for the Lord to be our shepherd, the, that we are invited to lie down in green pastures. Our souls, uh, we, we, we are cared for. We are anointed with oil. It's a beautiful picture, and, and that is definitely in the background here to John chapter 10. When Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd, notice what the good shepherd does. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So, so this is more than what you see in the 23rd Psalm. As a matter of fact, now we're being given a messianic application of the 23rd Psalm, even in the context of atonement for sin, which, which isn't directly referenced in the 23rd Psalm. But instead here, it turns out that the good shepherd is not only the one who cares for the sheep and provides for the sheep and protects the sheep, not only the one who, who 
prepares for the sheep a table in the presence of enemies, but is the one who lays down his life for the sheep. He makes this distinction again between the true and the false of, of, of those who, who would present themselves to Israel. The enemies are wolves. So we, we have thieves and robbers, and now we have wolves. But, but the interesting thing is, is that the good shepherd is the one who is willing to lay his life down for the sheep. With the hireling, the, the, the false prophet, the false teacher, the false pretender, when the wolf comes, he flees and leaves the sheep vulnerable to be eaten by the wolf. This is Jesus who said, upon this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Nobody's going to touch my, my, my sheep. Jesus says, you know, not one hair of their head will be lost. I don't lose anything. Again, John chapter 6, Jesus says, all the Father gives me will come to me. What the Father, of what the Father gives to me, I will lose nothing. The wolves don't get any of my sheep ever. The robbers don't take any of my sheep ever. Now, when you're looking at John chapter 10, remember that in John chapter 10, we're coming to the end of Jesus' public ministry as revealed in the Gospel of John. The passion narrative is going to take over very quickly. The things are going to get quick as Jesus is in Jerusalem. But as we're headed here in, in the end uh, section of what John presents as the, as the ministry of Jesus, here you have so much being laid out. They don't know yet what it means that Jesus, speaking as the good shepherd, says the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. But they will very quickly, and we do even now. But then there is that verse that follows, and this is where if we misidentify the sheep and, and, and how it progresses as a, as a metaphor throughout this passage, we're going to be in big trouble when we get to verse 16, and John tells us, and Jesus speaking here, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Now, this is where, if you're looking at the flock as, uh, as kind of universal humanity, then you end up with a universal salvation. And, and so, if you miss the fact that by the time Jesus is talking about being the good shepherd, and he's talking about his sheep, if you miss the fact that he's talking about his church, and if you miss the fact that he is the door in which, again, there's an inside and an outside. They're his sheep, they're other sheep. The, these are his sheep. These are the sheep who know his voice, and he knows them and calls them by name. If we miss that that is the church, then then we're, we're going to get confused. But there's further risk of confusion here. Because remember that when the text began and Jesus is, is referring to the sheepfold, that isn't the church, that's Israel. So the church that comes out, that knows Jesus by name, that, that he leads out and that he's now protecting as the good shepherd, they have come out of that sheepfold and, and they are his. But that helps us when Jesus says, I have sheep not of this fold. And by the way, those of us who are here, if not all of us, then the vast majority of those of us who stand here in Christ and even members of Third Avenue Baptist Church today, we are here because we are the sheep, not of that fold. 
or Gentiles. Jesus made very clear here in John chapter 10, he has sheep outside of Israel. Astounding. Israel did not expect that. The messianic expectations of Israel at this point, insofar as we can understand them, were that the nations would stream to Jerusalem to worship the one God. But they would still be outsiders, but they would be coming to Jerusalem, and they would join Israel in testimony to the one God. The kings will lay down their treasure, and, and, and they will come to, to Israel, to Jerusalem. Jesus changes that. The, the Great Commission in the end of Matthew changes that. Acts chapter 1 changes that. It doesn't mean that there will be no streaming into Jerusalem. There, there will be. The, the eschatological picture is very clear in the New Jerusalem. And, and there will be a time in that eschatological uh, fulfillment of all things that the kings will bring their crowns and set them at the feet of Jesus. But the important thing to recognize here is that we are told that out of Israel there will be those sheep who hear His voice. They're His sheep. He called them out by name. But He has sheep that are not of that fold. And He goes on to say, I must bring them in also. So the, this is a picture of our salvation. You, you think of the church. Here, so it turns out that John chapter 10 is one of those beautiful pictures of the New Testament church. Here it is. It's made up of those who first were called out by Christ as the good shepherd from the flock of Israel. He called them out by name. It wasn't accidental. It wasn't just random. It, there's election. He called them out by name. But he has sheep of other folds as well and I must bring them in. All the Father gives me will come to me. The one who comes to me I will no means cast out. All the Father gives me will come to me. Of all the Father gives me, I will lose nothing. Jesus continued, what about these sheep that are of another fold? What are they? Who are the sheep not of that fold of Israel? I must bring them in and they will listen to my voice. So, so, the same call goes. It's, it's the very same call. This effectual call is the same call. It's the call of the gospel. So how is it that we respond to Christ and hear His voice? It is by the proclamation of the gospel, period. How was it to Israel? By the proclamation of the gospel. How is it to those who are not of Israel's fold, who will be a part of Christ's flock? The same, by the preaching of the gospel. That's why, again, the Great Commission makes so much sense. Why? Paul in Romans chapter 10 makes so much sense. It's the preaching of the gospel that is the instrumentality whereby the call, the general call of the gospel is issued and the internal call of the Holy Spirit draws persons to Christ. Notice also a very important theological point, affirmative, period. There will be one flock one shepherd. Men and women drawn from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. One flock. One king, one Lord, one Christ. One faith, one baptism. One shepherd. 
Notice how it changes then as you look at verse 17. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Again, a reference to the crucifixion and the resurrection. This is how, this is the reason why the Father loves me. It's obedience. It's the Son's obedience to the atoning purpose of the Father. And He makes that clear when He continues by saying, of His life, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Again, the, the Great Commission, the end of the Gospel of Matthew, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority. This authority has been given to me. It's the authority to die as a substitutionary Savior, to lay down my life. In other words, it's not just to die, but it's the authority to die for our sins. He has the authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father. Predictable following verses. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he's a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who was oppressed by a demon. Can a demon, can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Wow. One of the greatest quandaries for the church throughout the ages, for Christians, is to understand that distinction between the outward and the inward call. And it's very easy to confuse. Here's the first and most fundamental truth. If there is no outward call, there will be no inward call. If there's no outward presentation of the gospel, if there's no taking of the gospel to the nations, if there's no preaching of the gospel in the pulpit, if there's no sharing of the gospel in conversation, then there's no inward call. The, again, in Paul writing in Romans chapter 10, he makes this clear. How will they believe without a preacher? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. So there is no just osmosis method of evangelism. There is no just wait and see who shows up in heaven picture of evangelism. There is no picture of the gospel as something that is simply intuited or breathed in or, or, or infectious in the air. No, it's verbal it's conceptual, it's preached, it's taught, it's shared. If, if no one preaches the gospel, then sinners will not hear the gospel, and if they do not hear the gospel, they will not believe. For all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, Paul reminds us, but, but how are they saved? Well, they have to hear. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. It's important we recognize that there has to be an outward call before there can be an inward call. So don't expect an inward call if there isn't an outward call. Don't expect people to respond to a gospel they haven't heard. But there's another confusion, and that is where some people just believe all that's necessary is the outward call. Just preach the gospel and y'all come. Well, we preach the gospel to everyone, believing that if anyone 
believes he or she will be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. We believe emphatically without reservation in the whosoever. Whosoever believes will not perish but have everlasting life. But it's not just an outward call. It's not just submitted for your consideration. It's not just, I have a deal for you, you should take it. It's the declaration that Christ died for sinners and that forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life comes to those who believe on His name. But once the gospel's preached, the outward call is given. Something has to explain how it is that some hear the gospel and believe and others do not. And that's that inward call. Jesus, apparently, the good shepherd, issues a call to Israel. Most didn't come. Of the ones who came, how does he describe them? They hear my voice. I know them. I call them by name. There's that inward and outward call. We've got to keep that straight. Without the outward call, there will be no inward call. But the outward call is not the saving call. Hell will be filled with lots of people who have heard the gospel and even believed parts of the gospel and even thought sweet things about Jesus. But they do not come to Christ in faith. There was an outward call without the inward call. The inner call was the call of Christ by name. The division that you see here at the end of this paragraph, that division among the Jews, is exactly what you would expect. And, and here you see that distinction. They heard Jesus together. They saw the miracles together. They, they had the confrontation with Jesus together, but they didn't have the same response. Many of them said he has a demon. This is exactly like what we find in Matthew 12 and 13. He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Just be done with this. Just, he, he's demonic. No worse thing could have been said. He's insane. Leave him. But, verse 21, but others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Very interesting little theological point. Demons never, ever, under any circumstances, give praise to God. That's the opposite of what demons are. You, there is no demon so incompetent that C.S. Lewis could describe him who would give praise to God. No, this just doesn't fit. The demonic category is ridiculous on its face. And, and not only that, demons don't open the eyes of the blind. And of course, you look at that and you say, that's true physically. It was true physically. John chapter 9 is what the whole chapter was about, but it's also true metaphorically. What Jesus is doing is opening the eyes of the blind. That's what Jesus did with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. That's what, that's what we sing about when we sing Amazing Grace. I once was blind, but now I see. So, there you have it. 
These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Well, they're right back in the question of John chapter 9. The sheep who were opposed to Jesus are still opposed. The, the, the sheep who didn't like Jesus still don't like Jesus. The sheep who will eventually call for the crucifixion of Jesus, they're still there. But also there are the sheep who heard his voice and followed him. And he saves them. And he protects them and provides for them. He's even the gate of the sheepfold. He's the good shepherd. The good shepherd who actually lays down his life for the sheep. All that in just a few paragraphs of John chapter 10. We got to the end of John chapter 9 and thought, what could possibly be more powerful than that? It's the way the Bible works. We thought we knew what John 9 was all about until we read just the few opening paragraphs of John 10. Let's pray together. Father, we just are so thankful that you give us your word ever fresh, ever new, ever true. Father, we pray that right now your Holy Spirit will take your word and in the lives of believers conform us to the image of your Son, Lord Jesus Christ. And it is in Christ's name that we do pray. Amen.